Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, whale lingo and stories from the deep. It's STEM for those of us whose favorite star is a fish. I thought you were going to say whose favorite star is Deanna, but that's fine. Oh, no! No, absolutely joking. Please don't use that. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, we got a voice memo from my friend Pedro Pascal, who Ooh. you might know him from Game of Thrones, Wonder Woman 1984, or as the star of The Mandalorian, perhaps. Um, and he came to us this week with an excellent STEM fact. Hi, this is Pedro Pascal. And my STEM fact is that mores have two sets of jaws. Think the alien in the movie Alien. Uh, They first bite their prey with their outer jaws, and then the second set of jaws, set deep in its throat, shoots forward and pulls the prey in. Isn't that disgusting and amazing? (laughs) Um, I think I need him to uh, do nature documentaries. (gasps) Right? Yeah. It was the, isn't that disgusting and amazing? And like the both disgust and wonder in his voice at the same time that I was like, oh, you're hired, sir. Moray, when we say moray, we mean like um, moray eels. I only yeah. say that because I had to briefly look it up. Yes, yes. Moray eels. And I, I looked this up as well. It's kind of amazing. I saw a video of one where they they placed a bit of bait outside of the water it kind of like throws itself up and it looks like it just bites like a little nibble. But then you see the the bait go down into its throat. So I guess it's like the second set of jaws shoot out and grab it and pull it in further. I mean, wild. I have to say, when I look at moray eels, the first thing I think to myself is they look like someone's very old uncle. Like they look like someone's 90 something year old uncle every time. Like there's something about like the way they always look at you from the side with their mouth open. <laughs> it's very, it, it's very much like I'm waiting to hear stories, you know. <laughs> I um, chose the wrong moment to take a sip of my drink. <laughs> I almost shot out my nose. You made me laugh so hard. I'm so excited in season two. We keep like doing 
different spins on our segments or different takes mm-hmm. on them. So this week we have a slightly different spin on story time section. And it's featuring Roman Mars, the host and creator of 99% Invisible, which is one of my all-time favorite podcasts. And it's a show that's about design, architecture, all these things that are really shaping our lives and our experiences that were 99% invisible to us. Great title. (laughs) Uh, And so we wanted to have him on to talk to us about crafting powerful stories about design. Um, He's really... He's really, in my mind, cracked something in terms of making stories about design also feel human and compelling. I don't know. He's he's great. You should listen to his show as well if you haven't listened to it before. So we're going to call that special conversation Anatomy of a Story. Yep. But first, we're going to be talking to Michelle Fournette, who's an acoustic ecologist that studies the social sounds of marine mammals. And she goes on research excursions and gathers incredible audio from them. Yeah. So much of her work has been centered on stories miles deep within the ocean, specifically communication between humpback whales. So we'll get to hear some audio she gathered using special microphones planted underwater. All right. Now let's get to our interview with Michelle Fournette. You want first up, Gillian? Sure, sure. So our our favorite question these days is, what is on your playlist at work? What are you listening to these days? Oh, at work? What am I listening to? Right now I'm listening to Wales. That is my playlist. Um, (laughs) You have the best answer so far. Yes, actually you do. (laughs) Yeah, I think that some people um, spend their day listening to music that makes them feel great. This morning when I was was writing, I was writing a manuscript this morning and I was listening to Tracy Chapman. Um, But I I generally switch over pretty quickly to the actual sounds of the ocean itself. <laughs> uh, well, this is a this is a silly personal story and I normally don't tell these, but one Christmas everyone was grumpy. We gone to bed too late, we woke it up too late. Tracy Chapman's song came on the radio and let me tell you it soothed us all. Saved Christmas. Oh, I I I feel like I was like, I I was a child of Tracy Chapman. I remember waking up in the morning and it would be playing on the radio downstairs. Like my mom would have it blasting when she was like scrambling eggs for us. And, and I remember thinking, oh yeah, this is what you should, this is how you start your day. Like, this is how you go in like ready for a revolution. You go in ready for some like calm, cool, collected ass kicking. Like this is how the day should start. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yay to that. Okay, so I would love to hear what drew you to marine ecology. Uh, what, what drew me to marine ecology was a problem and the desire to be a part of the solution. Um, I moved to Alaska when I was in my early 20s because it seemed like a big adventure. And I was not an ecologist at the time, and I didn't really know much about science at the time. I had gone down a very different path, and I got a job working on a whale-watching boat, and And it'll really change, well, I won't say what it will do to you, but for me, it really changed my life to spend that much time in such close proximity to wild animals. And to be around whales that much was really, really inspiring. And so I think the first year I did it, it was all about me and I felt great and I love whales so much. And then the second year I did it, I I sort of realized, I was like, this is nothing to do with me. This has everything to do with what's going on out there. And that was when I sort of woke up to the fact that I was spending 60 hours a week on a boat that made a lot of noise. And I was I was on that boat 
around these animals. And I was really flourishing off of sort of stealing their thunder and doing so in such a way that I wasn't that wasn't net neutral. And so I started doing more um, research into what noise did to animals like humpback whales and marine mammals and fish. And it was a real life-changing sort of epiphany for me to realize how much we didn't know. And in that vein, I sort of, I, I, I backtracked the direction I thought my life was going to take. And I went back to school. I did another undergrad. And, um, and lo and behold, here I am today listening to whales um, in addition to Tracy Chapman. Wow. I've never seen a whale up close. Can you describe for us what that's like? I'll tell you about two stories. The first is the first time I saw a whale, and the second is my favorite time that I saw a whale. The first time I saw a whale, I was sitting in the rain on a rock on a shoreline. I'd been in Alaska for about 48 hours and went for a hike with my dog and a friend I had just made and looked across the water, and it had to be miles away miles away, I could see this tiny breath. But in addition to seeing this Mm. tiny breath miles away, I could hear it. I could actually hear the breath of the whale, even though I was, I was so, so far away from it. And that completely blew my mind that I could, that something was so large that I could listen to it simply existing from miles away. And Then many, many years later, once I had become an ecologist and I was doing field work and I lived on this island where I did um, my, where I was doing research and we camped there for um, four months every year. And on this island, the whales would come and forage in the intertidal zone. So right up against the shoreline, the water dropped off really steeply. And I remember being in my tent one night and hearing the loudest inhalation I had ever heard. And I ran out of my tent and down to the shoreline. I threw on my boots. And I remember standing in the water with my feet in the water, probably about 15 feet away from a humpback whale. And every breath it took actually vibrated my body. And and those two moments are the ones that stick out to me most about being in the presence of whales. Something that's simple existence can can literally shake your bones. Um, and and I think that whales capture people's imagination for good cause. Um, they are completely indifferent to us on a good day, and even their indifference feels like a privilege. While you were telling that story. And when you got to the part where you were 15 feet away, my jaw was just, I was like, I can't, I can't even imagine. How, just for reference, just for scale of reference, how much bigger than, you know, the average human is, is a humpback whale? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm five foot five and about a buck 50 and I can stand on the shore and I can look at a whale that is anywhere from 35 to 50 feet long and weighs upwards of 80,000 pounds. So it's, it's like a, a living, breathing school bus. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's how big they are. And, um, even just their pectoral fins, you know, just their, their flippers, their sort of their equivalent to our arms are 15 feet long and weigh 4,000 pounds. Um, so we are we are just tiny, tiny, tiny in their presence. And this is just, and I'm talking specifically about humpback whales here. I mean, we could we could go real big and talk about blue whales. I mean, blue whales, hundred feet long, hundred tons, largest animal that has ever lived. To be in their presence is is wow. to be in the presence of a, you know of an animal that's larger than a dinosaur. And they're there. They're out there right now. Like we are chatting and talking about them, and they are breathing cool. and calling and singing and foraging and living their whale lives. And um, I think that's a really cool thing to remember. 
is that they're not just there when we're looking at them. They're there all the time. Have you ever been uh, near an animal that was that much larger than you where you had that no. sense of scale? No, not not at all. Not even close. I'm trying to think the closest. Uh, I'm trying to think of the biggest animal that I've been near. And I'm, I'm assuming it's probably an elephant. Mm-hmm. I not, Nothing like when she talks about feeling the breath and it's vibrating your body. That's wild. <laughs> that was kind of amazing how she talked about moving to Alaska, thinking she was going to have one type of adventure. But then... Mm-hmm. It led to a lifelong different type of adventure. That's really, yeah, that's actually a really beautiful uh, sentiment. I love the idea of sort of, you know, going on an adventure and and it truly being an adventure and you don't Mm. know what's going to happen next. Yeah. You know, in doing a little research in preparation to talking to you today, I was reading about, you know, how many different types of whales there are in so many different oceans? Can you give us a sense of how many places around the globe whales are living right now? Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the really amazing things about these animals is that they're everywhere. They're in every ocean on this planet. Um, If you have dipped your toes in the ocean, you have temporarily shared a habitat with a whale. Um, And so (laughs) humpback whales are found in all the world's major oceans, but on every coastline that you'll find anywhere, you'll also find small whales like dolphins and porpoise. And if you were to head out into big open ocean, out into the middle of the Southern Ocean down by Antarctica, you'd be sharing your space with blue whales and fin whales and minke whales. And if you're to head up to the frozen Arctic, you're going to go up towards, you know, past the tundra, you know, past the, the North Pole and all the way into the Beaufort Chukchi Sea. Uh, then you're going to be sharing your space with with bowhead whales and beluga whales. Um, We wanted to um, hear a little bit about how whales produce sound. Yeah, that's a great question. So how whales produce sound is still a little bit of an enigma to us. We know some, some I'm guessing at, and some I'm right. Um, Whales, unlike people or mammals or even birds, um, they hold their breath when they're producing sound. So if you were to put your hand up in front of your mouth while you're breathing, which I'm doing right now, and while I'm talking, I can feel the inhale and exhale of air. When a whale communicates, it takes a breath at the surface and then it goes under the water and it actually moves that air back and forth across a set of vocal folds or phonic lips, which is like our vocal cords. But they have different cavities in, in their skulls that the that air gets squeezed into and how it gets squeezed and the, the rate with which it gets squeezed and moved back and forth is how they produce sounds. So um, it's a little bit different for dolphins and toothed whales than it is for baleen whales. And a lot of it we're still just figuring out. Um, but generally what it is is that they are very adept at moving moving air around the various spaces in their in their heads. And they can do this with extreme precision and accuracy and in doing so create a really wide range of vocalizations. So that that leads into my next question, which is why do whales vocalize? Oh, that is that's my favorite question. That is the most interesting question that I that in in my entire research program, that that very much is sort of why I got into this. Um, the short answer is we don't know. The long answer is we kind of know. So some <laughs> whales um, will produce sounds for for very specific reasons. So um, odontocetes will echolocate, which is a type of vocalization where they produce this very high pitched sound and it bounces around the environment and bounces back to them and they paint this acoustic picture. So they use echolocation to hunt. They use echolocation 
motivation to interact with their environment um, and to interact with each other. Um, for baleen whales, they'll produce vocalizations like song. So blue whales, fin whales, humpback whales, and bowhead whales all sing. Um, in these singing vocalizations, they are presumably sung by males in an attempt to either deter other males or to bring in other females. Um, but then there's a whole suite of vocalizations in addition to that that we don't know the function of. And we've only just begun to investigate it. So my specialty is humpback whales. And for humpback whales, there's only two sounds that we actually know anything about sort of what they mean. And one of them is a social sound. So it's meant for making contact. And the other one is a feeding call. And fundamentally, it's its whole purpose is just to scare fish. Well, we have a couple clips that uh, you have captured on your excursions. And we were going to play each one and then have you talk about what's being communicated. Tamika, will you play the first one? I've made this noise. I've made this noise myself. I, I think that more people have made this noise than actually want to admit it. It's fairly common across, you know, across mammals. That's a mammalian sound. That um, is a familiar one. What is, but what is that in, for whales? So what you just heard is a call called a whoop, a whoop call. And the, the name is meant to be kind of onomatopoetic, you know, and that call is produced by all humpback whales worldwide. In every population that we have looked, we have found that sound. And that's pretty special considering that um, if you dropped a hydrophone in Hawaii and then dropped a hydrophone in Guam, these are both humpback whale breeding grounds, the whales there would be singing, but they'd be singing different songs. It would sound really different. Um, similarly, if you were to listen to a killer whale in Antarctica versus listening to a killer whale in British Columbia, they're going to sound different. They have different dialects. So what does it mean that humpback whales that have been genetically isolated from each other for as much as 3 million years are producing the same sound? And so what that whoop call means, and this is sort of hot off the press research, um, is it's actually a contact call. That is a way for whales to make contact with other whales, um, to sort of come into a space, into a, you know, a bay or an acoustic arena, anywhere underwater, and to make the pronouncement of, you know, I am here. And then when the whale makes that pronouncement, when it makes that whoop call, if there's another whale in the area, generally that whale will call back. So it will, you know, create its own whoop call and say, I am also here. And in doing that counter calling, um, the whales have an awareness, not just of sort of where other animals are, but potentially also who the other animals are. So that that's, we think, one of the foundational sounds that whales make worldwide to facilitate social interactions. So it's a really important sound. Wow. I didn't know that whales had different dialects. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lots of whales have different dialects. In fact, as an acoustician, one of the things that we can do is put hydrophones in different parts of the ocean and figure out which population we're listening to based on their accents. Wow. That's so cool. We're going to take a quick break and then we will be right back. And we're back. What tech do you use to conduct your research? Um, sometimes it's really high tech stuff like 
bottom mounted hydrophone arrays. So underwater microphones that stay underwater for years at a time. And they have these really cool acoustic releases that are attached to them. And the way that that works is that I have this instrument, which is attached to an anchor, which is attached to my hydrophone and it's underwater, no surface expression. It's down there at the bottom of the ocean. And I leave it there for a year. And then I come back a year later and I, I drop a microphone in the water, a speaker, and I can talk to my acoustic release. And if I say the right password, the acoustic release will, will send my instrument to the surface. It'll release from, from the ocean floor and it'll float to the top and give it wow. back to me, <laughs> which I just think is really cool. Um, so that's probably some of the more high-tech stuff that I use. And we've dropped those all over the world. You know, I, I got to go down to Antarctica one time just to go talk to an acoustic release and pull back an instrument. Uh, I have a question about how the properties of water affect how uh, sound is transmitted. Yeah, that's a that's another really good question. So there's a reason that humans love to look at things and whales love to listen to them. And it has to do with how sound travels. So light underwater doesn't travel very far. You could go to, you know, just 70 or 80 feet and it's much, much darker, whereas sound travels really far. So sound travels approximately three times faster underwater than it does on land. And that means that you can, you know, if you're a scuba diver and you bang on your tank, it'll be really loud for a long time. And so as a result, most marine organisms have evolved very acute hearing and sound production um, in order to effectively communicate, but their eyesight's not super great because there's not really that much to see. Whereas here on land where sound doesn't travel as far, but light does, um, we have evolved as humans um, to have really acute vision and vision is our primary sense. But because of the properties of sound underwater and how sound travels, and I mean, some sounds can travel for like a thousand kilometers. They can travel really, really far. Um, and so marine organisms like humpbacks and other whales have really taken advantage of this and they rely on sound as their primary sensory modality. So, um, so again, you just have to flip-flop it. Like if you imagine that sound is so important to you that you couldn't live without it, but maybe eyesight wouldn't be as important, then you're, then you're starting to imagine the world from the perspective of a marine mammal. Okay. We have another clip. Uh, Tamika, will you hear that up for us? <laughs> That's great. What is that? What is this whale uh, communicating? That's the fish scaring sound. That. <laughs> oh, it's scary. Yeah, that's the one that scares the fish. Um, <laughs> but it's such a cool sound. So that's a feeding call. And I'm going to tell you two things about it. One is that only humpback whales in Alaska produce it. So we, it, we think that it's culturally transmitted. So it's learned. It's passed from individual to individual, which is super cool. Um, the other thing is it is perfectly matched to the hearing capabilities of this little silver fish called a Pacific herring. Herring don't have great hearing. They can't hear that well, but they can hear really well at the 500 hertz frequency band. Humpback whales will basically sing to them, which is what you just heard, this sort of like operatic feeding cry. And that cry is perfectly tuned to peak sensitivity of this fish's hearing. So you might, I mean, you could, you could whisper to a fish, probably can't hear you. You might like whistle at a fish, it probably can't hear you. But if you make that sound to this fish, it can hear you and it gets scared and it runs away. And um, herring have this flea and clump response when they get scared. So they ball up and they move in the opposite direction. 
which means that as the humpback whale makes that sound, a group of them will go under the school of fish. One of them will make that sound and they sort of push the fish up towards the surface of the water. And in an effort to run away from the whale, the fish all get concentrated against the surface of the water, which means that the whales can come up and eat them pretty easily. (laughs) It's such a, you know what, I know that I, it totally makes sense what you say about the frequency, but it also, that sounds like something in a scary movie. Like it's a very <laughs> scary sound, even to me. Right? I am wondering, what if I am really a herring? Because that noise did scare me a lot. That herring scaring noise. Yeah. That scared me. Well, I promise I will never sing because uh, I was like, this also <laughs> sounds like me trying to sing. <laughs> Will you please sing like two lines of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star as as a whale scaring noise? Oh, oh, oh okay. I like this. Okay. Uh, twinkle, twinkle, little star, I wonder what you are. <laughs> That was beautiful. (laughs) That actually was really beautiful. (laughs) Um, Okay, we have uh, one more sound. Wow. Wow. Is that is that a sound of a 1950s UFO landing? That, I can confirm that that is Marvin the Martian, that we recorded that in approximately 1962. Um, no, so that is, A, it's a really, really common sound in the springtime in the Arctic. And what you're listening to is the vocalization of a of several. There's several on this recording. Um, male bearded seals. So huh. those are male seals, big seals. They're big guys, super cute, and they are under the water and they're making that sound to try and attract a mate. So that <laughs> basically what we just heard was a was a like the ecological equivalent of a love song. And we heard a lot of males all singing their little hearts out to try and and be the one who sings the best song so that they get access to the female so that they can procreate and, you know, live long and prosper. Do we have a sense of what makes it the best uh, love song? Like what what qualities about that are most appealing to the the other um seals that they're trying to attract? Oh, that's a good question. Um, for bearded seals, I don't know the answer to that other than that it's loud and it's long. Um, but <laughs> sure. we have done this. Ex- yeah. You know, um, we've done this experiment, a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Leanna Matthews, really, really great lady, super, super fun, really smart. Um, she went and she did an experiment to answer exactly that question with harbor seals. And so she took a speaker and she played back the sound of male harbor seals to a female in estrus. And she um, adjusted the sound. So sometimes it was sort of short and squeaky and sometimes it was low and long. And sometimes 
sometimes it was any combination. And what she found was that sounds that were lower in frequency and longer were more likely to be attractive to a female. And that makes sense because if you're a big seal, you'll have a lower voice. And if you are Mm. a super strong breath holder, you can make a longer sound. So um, females are basically using these signals to determine like who's, who's the healthiest, who's likely to have the best genetic material to pass on to their offspring. Makes sense. We heard from our producer Tamika that during the pandemic, uh, what you were hearing in the oceans changed a lot. Can you tell us about that? Oh, absolutely. So we aren't the only ones that were impacted by this pandemic. There, I mean, the whole world, which includes all the ecosystems and all the animals in it, are impacted by what humans do. And when we changed, when when we all stayed home for as long as we stayed home, the earth responded and human behavior changed. And sometimes that can be, sometimes that's not great. You know, we saw some things during the pandemic that did not benefit the environment the way that we want it to. There was an increase in poaching, for example. There was an increase in plastic use. These are things that we need to address, that we need to say our human actions have caused this environmental change. But on the flip side of that, the pandemic has also created some really amazing respite for the natural world, um, an opportunity for the natural world to reset itself. And that is absolutely what we've seen with noise. Ocean noise dropped dramatically during the pandemic. And not just ocean noise, but anthropogenic noise in general dropped dramatically because we all stayed home. We stayed home. There were no no boats on the water. There were no cars on, on the roads. There were no airplanes in the skies. And that was a real boon for nature. And the oceans got quiet. The oceans got really quiet. And when we reduced our, our vessel footprint, we were able to record animal voices that we've never heard before. And, and that was a pretty exciting and inspiring thing. And we actually just about a week ago put new hydrophones down. So we're listening now. We've got hydrophones back in those same locations and we are listening to how the ocean and the whales respond as humans come back. Like, what does it sound like to have to to listen to that reintroduction to maritime society? And we will compare it to what we heard last year and to what we heard the year before and see really, what are these whales doing when we're around? What are these whales not doing when we're around? So what can we do to mitigate the negative effects that we have on marine life? One of the things the pandemic showed us is that unlike plastic pollution, unlike climate change, which is going to require enormous efforts to slow. All of us need to be working on that. We really should. But those, those like that is, we've got momentum behind those issues. With noise, we can literally turn it off. We can make very instantaneous decisions about how we interact with the ocean to make it quieter. Our boats can go slower. Boom. Ocean gets quieter. I mean, that's a pretty simple solution. We can we can um, utilize new technologies to make quieter boats. And as that also makes them more fuel efficient, which makes them more cost effective. So now the people that are out on boats who are getting goods where they need to go are also saving money and possibly saving time. So that's a win-win for the ocean and for, and for the people who are in those industries. Um, small changes in behavior. So caravanning boats. So if a bunch of boats are coming into a port, have them all come in one after the other. That way we can sort of block off that period of time where it's going to be noisy. Lots of things that we can do. Um, On a personal level, 
I mean, this is, this is good for the environment on so many levels, but shop locally. If you're, if, if your things are not being shipped from far away, that you're reducing your noise footprint, you're also reducing your carbon footprint. So getting your vegetables from the farmer's market doesn't just feel good. And it's not just a great place to get a cup of coffee and, you know, a nice, you know, zucchini. It's also a way to make the ocean quieter because almost everything these days travels, you know, overseas and, and in boats and up hmm. and down coast. So personal change matters, bigger change, institutional change policy change matters more. You seem like you are a person who has found a purpose for your life, something that is driving you with you. And you you talked about that revelation that you had living in Alaska um, about how we were impacting whales. Where do you think your drive as a person comes from beyond that moment of revelation that you had? I think that my drive is always to do good and tell the truth. That's my job, you know, that's my job as a scientist, but it's also my job as a human. I don't know where I learned it, probably from my really awesome parents, probably from some great communities and some good mentors that I had who showed me the value of being kind and telling the truth. But that's where I focused all of my efforts scientifically and I try and let that bleed over into how I live my life and how I teach my students and how I work with my mentees is to encourage them to do the same. Um, science is often focused on telling the truth, but not always focused on doing good. And I think we really need both. And so, um, so I also make time to come and do super cool podcasts like this one <laughs> and <laughs> and hope that people listen and, and maybe think, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way. Or, oh, I didn't realize that maybe where I buy my vegetables impacts ocean noise. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably where it comes from for me. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I've learned so much. I feel really inspired um, by this conversation and um I'm going to look at every body of water with new eyes and and hear with new ears. Oh, oh, that's really wonderful. Thank you so much for giving me the chance to to be on the show and to to tell these stories with you. It means a lot to me. Just one last break. When we return, we've got a special conversation with Roman Mars from the show 99% Invisible. We'll be right back. We're back. It's story time. Uh, this week, we are joined by the host and creator of the podcast, 99% Invisible, Roman Mars. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Uh, 99% Invisible is one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, Deanna's heard me talk about it many mm -hmm. times. <laughs> um, I've listened to the show for years. I love it. Um, I try not to copy it on this, but be inspired <laughs> by it. Um, and I, I just love, I love, love, love your approach to storytelling and um, how engaged I feel listening to stories about design now because of your show. Oh, it's so kind of you to say. I appreciate it. So I feel like you've really honed in on the art of storytelling with your podcast and not just that, but telling stories about design in a human way. 
It's something I'm still learning about, how to tell stories in an oral medium and how to make technical stories feel human. So we're so curious to hear about your process on the show, how you craft stories. And and we know that, you know, not all stories are the same. They can't have the same structure on the show. But it feels like you and your team find meaning in the smallest details. And those details really give shape to the incredible stories we hear on 99PI. How do you know which details are important and which ones matter? Hmm. Well, you're right. They do vary a lot. I mean, mainly it's just like you make the story you want to hear. So you look for the details that excite you that you would tell, like, at a bar or that you would just like pull out from the story and, and tell. Um, those usually aren't themes. They're usually not the most important thing necessarily, but they're they're just something that you're like, oh, that little detail that it decodes the world in an interesting way. And those are the ones that I gravitate towards as the as centering. And then when you're setting up a story, you're basically setting up a, a problem or something to be curious about. And then there's this, we call this thing called the turn, which is essentially like, um, well, to understand this, but first we need to go and tell you this history. Because the truth is, is that 99PI is a stealth history podcast. I mean, it really is just <laughs> telling you a, a story about how things got to where they are now. And then tries to look at, you know, kind of the cool and odd ways that you might not have thought about um, about this thing that is kind of everyday to you and, and and trying to find delight in those things. And, you know, that that's been our mandate from the beginning. And, and people really like glommed onto that purpose like very very quickly in the show like mm. as an audience like the audience told me what the show was about as much as I decided mm. what the show was about wow so we have a couple different clips that we want to play um, to familiarize our audience with them and also to kind of talk about them with you and figure out how it is that you build such an incredible podcast so before every story on your show the episodes all begin the same way uh, and they begin sounding like this this is 99% invisible. I'm Roman Mars. You're laughing. Is it weird to hear your voice? <laughs> oh, I've gotten so used to it. I used to hate my voice so much, and it took me forever to get used to it. Like seven years, I think, of broadcasting before I seven years. Oh, good. Used to it. So you have some. I've got six more left. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, really? You have such a soothing voice. But I didn't always like that. That's something that you build. Like you look for the parts of your voice you like. You know, and and you kind of ex- you begin to like use them like a muscle. It's it's a type mm. of acting, but it's like acting that's it's like, but it's required to be naturalistic. But you have to work really hard to be natural. <laughs> and I think I, you know that's going in. You know, like it's it's like it's just like even though it's like oh you you're effortless. You just look like you're you doing your you know no. It's like you're working very very hard back to the circle of like of performing like yourself essentially. Mm. And so mm. the. You know, the, the tag at the top um, is uh, is a little bit of a is a tone setter because mm. um, I always knew that the show was going to be about everyday mundane things. And when you're trying to convince people that that's an interesting use of their time, you kind of have to put your arm around them and say, OK, no, 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 really, this is interesting. This is, You have to look at this, look closely at this and. And I've always mic'd the show so that um, I'm really close to the mic. So it sounds like a voice inside your head. And so mm. the idea is that that the, the show voice is this companion that says, oh, no, no, check this out. Like lean in and check this out. And so it sounds like you know a bit whispered, a bit close. And it sounds like my voice in my head to me. 
And so that's that's all really deliberate. But it, it took a while to sort of like, I mean, that, that was kind of the idea from the beginning, but we got better at it over time. What do you think makes a good story? What is the anatomy of it? Well, I think you have to have good characters and good voices. Like we, we think about things in terms of audio. So I really like the sound of people's voices. So you put that up front, you know, something. Mm-hmm. And then you're looking for, you know, stakes and struggle. All this stuff like people kind of know. Um, you know, for us, I think with 99PI, we're always looking for an element that is about uh, decoding the world in some way. So we could tell you the whole story of a thing. But it isn't that you've encountered this specific thing in your life, but it gives you the tools to to notice that in the world around you. And that that kind of makes for 99PI story, what makes the story really work for us is that that the story, you know, goes with you, you know, and, and you take it into your life to decode mm-hmm. the world in a, in a good way and delight and see stories everywhere because of that story that we did. And that that's the X factor that we often look for. Okay, so... I want to talk about story structure specifically. Mm -hmm. Let's play a clip from an episode of 99PI called The Batman and the Bridge Builder. And when this is finished playing, we'll break down how you chose to set up the story. We talked to a lot of architects on the show, but this week we're talking to an engineer. My name is Mark Blaschok, and I am a professional engineer in the state of Texas. He's like really from Texas. Yes, yes. I'm a fourth or fifth generation Texan. I've uh, forgotten which one, but I've been raised in other parts of the country, too. Uh, So uh, I, I can talk the talk because I have been raised in the East Coast, you know. We talked to Mark about one of the first projects that he ever worked on. That's producer Emmett Fitzgerald. He had just graduated from college at the University of Houston, and he'd gotten a job in Austin with the Texas Department of Transportation. And I was in my um, mid-20s at the time, uh, so 40 years ago. Well, actually, I like to say four decades. It sounds like less. And I was assigned to uh, a number of things, but I ended up on the Congress Avenue Bridge. That is the reconstruction of the Congress Avenue Bridge. The Ann Richards Congress Avenue Bridge is just a simple concrete arch bridge that spans Lady Bird Lake in downtown Austin. The bridge was completed in 1910, but by the late 1970s, it was in need of a tune-up. It was uh, structurally deficient, and so it um, it was rebuilt. And more conventional, more modern, more contemporary beams were put in called box beams. The box beams sit below the road surface, and they need to be spaced a certain distance apart. Mark and the other engineers decided that the gap should be somewhere between three-quarters of an inch and an inch and a half. And the size of that gap didn't seem like a particularly meaningful decision until the bats moved in. Wow. So we just got so much information from that one clip. Mm -hmm. So the things I heard, and you tell me, I'm sure I've missed some things. You've established yourself as the host. Mm -hmm. You've established the the main interviewee, um, the reporter, the location where the story is taking place. We've gotten some sense of the personality and the humor of the storytelling style. And now we're also breaking down the design element of it and hinting towards something to come. So by the end of that, we know somehow bats are involved with a bridge in Texas. <laughs> yep. That's uh, that's all we were juggling right there. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, that's, you know, the beginning is usually has a lot of information and and so you have to convey a, a fair amount of it and you have to decide like how much detail. Um, we, we tend to, I think we've cultivated our audience to handle a lot of detail at, at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and this is Emmett's story. So like Emmett wrote this um, and we worked on it you know, together as a, as a, as a staff. Um, but, you know, you know, starting with the, with Mark Bloschok and the bridge, you, you know, this is a story of like actually kind of two people coming together mm-hmm. and you could have gone the other way. I think, and, and, and truthfully, you probably could have gone the other way. You know, it's, it's sort of like, I, I think that there's a, there's a habit when you make a lot of stories that you think that there's one way to tell it. And, and truthfully there just isn't, there's lots of ways to tell a good story. Um, we chose this one. I think we centered it around the bridge because of our particular mandate to, to deal with infrastructure and, and design things. Um, we could have started with the fact that bats are, uh, you know, like it went through a real Renaissance of being hated to being loved. Uh, that could have been the start of it. Um, because that's kind of more what the story is about. The bridge is, is 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 a character, but not really like the most important thing. It's sort of the jumping off point. You know, things that are meaningful to me, like that three and a half, you know, three quarters of an inch to, to an inch and a half is like, you know, I like wonky details about design. So like that stays, you know, like this, it's just, it's a little bit of taste, you know, like, um, and then you have to land on the word bats, you know, you like there's something mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's a real, so there's this, this like kind of curious propulsive, you know, like, um, music that's trying to drive you forward. And then it goes to, to silence, um, for the word bats, because we want you to focus on the word bats. <laughs> mm. Um, and so that's, pre- that's intentional too. Um, you know, like if you were trying to be, you know, ruthless, you're, you would cut out all that sort of like fourth or fifth generation Texas and his, his like really terrible, you know, like East coast Northern accent or whatever it is. It's sort of like partly Midwest and partly it's like, you know, like, but it's so charming. It's like who he is. And so you want that, you know, um, you know, so, so all that sort of stuff is just like, you just do it. You, you try to pare it down to being like as simple as possible, but you make sure that you don't strip and sort of denude it to the, to the bone where you're not enjoying it, you know, cause, cause these people mm-hmm. are great and you want to spend time with them. And I, I'm probably like on the staff, I'm one of the laxest editors because I simply like the <laughs> voice. I like people talking. Like I, I can, I can allow them to talk for like another five or 10 minutes. It's just, this is my deal. Um, and then we have other people that are like, get it out of there. Like, we don't want, want to, I don't want anything to do with this. And so, you know, so we just balanced it all out in, in the group when we, when we had it. Okay. We have another clip from the episode. Uh, and in this, one of the primary characters decided that he wants to help protect bats by challenging the public's perception of them. So he goes on TV to show people that they don't need to be afraid. Let's hear that clip. In 1982, he launched an organization called Bat Conservation International, based in Milwaukee. And he began touring the country, preaching the bat gospel to anyone who would listen, including David Letterman. He has spent 20 years studying bats and feels that they don't get the respect they rightfully deserve. Please welcome Dr. Merlin Tuttle. Merlin did his best, but you can hear the audience squirming in their chairs when he starts pulling out live bats. And at times, it doesn't feel like Letterman is taking Merlin and his bats very seriously. What have you done to that chihuahua? (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, so, it's, go ahead. No, go, no ahead. go ahead, Tiana. Please. I was just going to say it's so simple, but it's so effective. Mm-hmm. Just it's you, you can see it, you yeah. know. So how is it that how are you able to um, juxtapose um, being visual through audio? Well, I mean, it just so happens that that one, I think, is pretty easy to understand. Like it, it barely needs that narration that Emmett is doing there. The squirming in the seats, although, I, it, you know, like we, we're doing that mostly to telescope the the audio from the TV show. So it's like we need to jump mm-hmm. from here to here. So we have someone say something in between. Um, I think Emmett also just delivers that line, that squirming line, like he does it with with, you know, <laughs> with sort of an onomatopoetic kind of style. And then <laughs> but to me, it was just like th- this explains what Tuttle is up against. Like we're setting mm-hmm. him up and, and, and it isn't like, you know, like people hate bats, you know, like, and we, we talked about that a little <laughs> bit. It's just that like people think it's ridiculous, you know, and, and they have an easy time making fun of it. And to me, like I grew up with David Letterman, I'm, I'm the oldest person on staff by, by a little bit, um, but by on average about 10 years. And so David Letterman is extremely important to me, <laughs> you know, like, and so I, I was, this was one that we almost cut, but I was kind of like over my dead body. <laughs> like I, I really, this means a lot to me because we thought we were conveying enough of the, the, you know, the strife of bats, you know, and being misunderstood um, without this, but I just liked it. And so I wanted, I, I, I really wanted to, I mean, I think a couple other people wanted in, but it, but it was up for debate whether or not it was going to, couldn't go. Um, um, and we had a lot more of it, but we just streamed it, streamlined it down to, to what you, what you heard. Um, I just think it's like huh. nice, like you're, you're creating something um, that, that's, you know, radiophonic, which is like, if you transcribed the, the tape and just read it, um, it sh- it shouldn't convey everything that is happening. Like you should make it so that it's obligatory that you have to listen to it, and mm. and so that's what this is. You know, like it's it's about adding some different texture because there's a way that your ear gets bored of a certain thing over time, and 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 that mm-hmm. cycle is about. Uh, 40 seconds to a minute and a half, basically. It's kind of about the distance of a box beam <laughs> under a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> How but, important are callbacks? <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but, it, but, it, but there's a thing, and you'll notice it with good radio that you really resonate with. And, and This American Life kind of perfected this or actually kind of settled on it and perfected it. But they, there's, they have an anecdote and reflection cycle, which is essentially like, here's a part of the story. And then they stop the story a little bit and they say, look, what did that how'd that make you feel? And then they do it again. And they how did it make you feel? And there's certain writers that I don't know if you, you know, like there's certain, I listen to a lot of audiobooks too. And certain writers are really good, uh, like on audible and certain writers are not because they yeah. naturally write to this cycle of listening because, because your attention span just sort of drifts when you're listening to something, uh, linear and audio and, and, and you can sort of be distracted by something and then you're just out the airlock. Like you you can't get back into it. Like you can't remember the character name or whatever it is. And so we look for those things to like just, you know, like tickle the ear enough, like change it enough to like keep you going into something else. And, and that's why, you know, like podcasts that are monologues are hard, but but two people like they create that rhythm like naturally mm. because they break in with each other and they, they create enough of a conversation that you can in, be interested in it and so that's what we're trying to do when we're when we're introducing different oral elements like this let's talk a little bit about non-human characters we have a clip of when a bat is introduced from this episode let's play that real quick merlin was convinced that people fear things they don't know 
And so we wanted to make sure people in Austin got the chance to know real bats up close. One bat in particular, actually. A very cute bat called a flying fox that was brought back from a trip to Kenya. Its name was Zuri. If you've ever seen one of those really big-eyed bats that looks like a puppy, maybe it was munching on a banana in a YouTube video, yeah, Zuri was was one of those. He was our media star. He was, uh, Marla would take him everywhere, you know. He was on television programs and everything else. And and I must give Zuri credit because he was just adorable. And, you know, you take that guy around and show him at uh, talks and everything, and you've won people over. <laughs> this is Zuri, and his name in Swahili means beautiful. In this clip, someone from Bat Conservation International is holding Zuri in front of a classroom of elementary school children. The kids initially seem pretty hesitant. Do bats bite hard? Well, bat, some bats have sharp teeth because they need sharp teeth. Has anyone seen him try and bite? No. No, he's very gentle. And this is the way most bats are naturally. What do they feed their babies? And blood? No, they feed their babies milk. Over time, the school children of Austin bought in. They even started forming little bat conservation clubs. And little by little, Austin's relationship to its bats shifted from fear to acceptance and eventually even to enthusiasm. So why is this such an effective way to introduce this new character (laughs) of bats? Yeah. Well, it was, yeah, you're trying to... to get a picture in someone's mind. And I think the writing there is really, like Emmett did such a good job. But like, like I don't know the specific YouTube clip that he's talking about when he says munching on a banana. But like, it does the job so well in so few mm-hmm. words of this cute thing that you, you've seen something like this where you know exactly the cuteness that is being tapped into. And then, um, and then, that scene in the classroom where the, where the kid says, is he blood? You know, and um, no, it's it's milk, you know, and um, that's just delightful to me. And I think it just sort of it just sort of sets you up with like, OK, these are going to be these cute bats. Um, we're going to you know reset the stage for like how how you're going to perceive of what your image of a bat is so that you like so so that you can hear the story and just kind of enjoy the wonder of it without um, thinking too much about bats if you have a fear of bats. I don't have, I don't have any concept of a fear of bats personally, but, but, but <laughs> you know, we, we knew we had to work in it a little bit. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I like doing stories about architecture and stories about visual things on the radio is because people have a visceral response to their immediate aesthetics when it comes to, when it comes to architecture. But if I could in, in, into like brutalism, for example, like big concrete buildings, like people tend to like, ugh, like they, they see them and they don't like them. But if I can tell you the story of a building before you see it, I can make you fall mm. in love with it. And, and then you'll see it and you'll go, oh, I get what's going on there. And so, so much of what you, what you do when you do audio storytelling or just kind of any storytelling is you take everything that's a perceived, you know, weakness and you turn it into your strength. And, and here the strength is, is that we can we can make you picture the cutest bat in the world, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and you don't have to have an opinion about how you feel about it when you see it. But we, but we will put the cutest one possible in your head, so that the next you know the next sort of iteration of this is you're like you're you're on team bat, you know, <laughs> like no matter what. And that's kind of what this section does. So 
there are rules in storytelling that you can intentionally play, play with or break altogether. And in 2020, at the start of the pandemic, you completely changed the format of your show uh, in an episode called Roman Mars Describes Things As They Are. <laughs> so let's take a listen to how you started that episode. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Hello, beautiful, homebound nerds. If I sound a little different, it's because I'm recording this at home. You might even hear some cars passing by. I'm not sick. Uh, hopefully, neither are you. But many of us are staying home so that we don't inadvertently become vectors to a virus whose impact we don't fully understand. This is the right thing to do. We are all part of one big ecosystem. And if any part of us gets sick, we all suffer. We are in this together. So... My job in this world is to tell stories about all the thought that goes into the things most people don't think about. And since many of us are stuck at home, maybe alone, maybe lonely, I thought we'd spend some time exploring this place we call home together. Just you and me. Sound good? If you answer back out loud, I, I won't think you're weird. <laughs> <laughs> we, we talked earlier about like, you know, the familiarity of the introduction mm. and, you know, kind of the intimacy and it works. It's like one of these things where it's like such a payoff. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> I don't want there to be a global pandemic to have this payoff, but I mean, mm. it really is. It feels both so intimate and still so new. It's really, it's incredible. Well done, sir. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So the things that are different there are, there's no music, like almost always after mm. the nine, I'm Roman Mars, there's a music hit. Mm -hmm. And I, so that, that show is completely dry. There's no music. Um, I was really looking for something different because there was a, cause it was, you know, we're a bunch of humans that make this show. And so like we, we, we feel the world, you know, like when we make it and you know, there was a, I don't know what the episode that was going to, that was supposed to go on, you know, that, that week, but everything felt irrelevant. And so mm. I was like, well, you know, if, if the, you know, if the sort of, idea the central crux of the show is that we sit and describe things and and talk about the interesting stories behind boring things well then i'll just do it around here and then kind of encourage people to be inside because at that point there was no mandate to be inside it was the very very beginning but it was like people were like work was closing down like i think the, for the most part i think my kids came home from school the friday before and, it, it, you know, with no real, you know, like, and then they'll be like, they'll be back in two weeks or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, um, but I just wanted to reflect it, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so, so that was the, that was the episode that was in my head. And so um, hmm. and th that's what we made. And I really focused on trying to like do that uh, comfort and soothing and also, um, a bit of the seduction of just like, okay, stay inside guys. Like, I know, I know you don't want to, but like, I really, really wanted to make a case for it because I believed in it. Um, and it, you know, and that piece culminates with like, um, you know, I end up at my record player and I, I play a song. The only thing that the only song you hear is a song like, uh, I don't know what you call it. Uh, diegetic or something that the in the scene you know like versus like oh, oh yes. soundtrack versus diegetic sound is like if you right. character turns on a radio and they play sound anyway um so it's diegetic and um and i make this case for like this this musician that i love who has a heart condition who's like who can't go you know like we're, we're gonna do this for for him you know um and i asked his permission <laughs> like i was like okay so i want to make you the center of this thing is this cool with you <laughs> and he was really nice about it but like the 
the, the whole thing is a subtle case for um, us collectively caring about each other by doing nothing. And, um, and so that's part of it too. So there's a few agendas that are going on there. Um, but hopefully you just feel that intimacy and you just want to go on and ease into it. That's the idea. Um, we have another, we have this one last clip to set up and I'm really excited because I have a, I think a question that I've been waiting to ask you this whole time. (laughs) So this is from that same episode and this is when you're kind of walking around your place and you're describing what you're seeing and the backstories that you see when you look around your space. Let's walk down the stairs. And we are entering the hall. In his book, At Home, Bill Bryson wrote that no room has fallen further in history than the hall. I always remember that line. I've been to Stirling Castle in Scotland a few times, and I love it there, especially the Great Hall, which has been painted a shocking and delightful buttery yellow since its restoration in the 1990s. We did a story about it a few years ago. You should check it out. Um, It seems impossible that a hall like the one in Stirling Castle and the hall in your house have a shared origin, but they do. The hall used to be everything. From the Middle Ages to about the 15th century, the hall was effectively the house, with a central hearth that people used to warm themselves and cook over. All activity took place there, awake and asleep. As soon as a second room was added to homes, the hall has been on a downhill slide. Now it is this dumb thing, a non-room room, whose primary function is to connect other rooms. So you know, pour one out for the hall. Uh, I love that so much. (laughs) My question is, is it possible to train your brain to see stories everywhere? (laughs) It it, it totally is. And, and, and because I did it, like, I'm, I mean, like, I'm going to use, I don't want this to be obnoxious, but I'm going to use Roman Mars as a, as a third person. But basically (laughs) Roman Mars is an aspirational figure uh, who notices Mm -hmm. all things and cares about all things and reads every plaque. I am not Roman Mars all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a family nickname? Who are you really? (laughs) No, I'm, I'm Roman to everybody, but, but still it's sort of, (laughs) but that character of, of, of being, uh, you know, like astute alert on it, you know, like. You know, I don't have that all the time. I have to really mm. do have to do, I do have to keep it going. And so mm. and and sort of keep that curiosity alive. And I do that through the work. You know, like I, I mm-hmm. don't know if I would always be like this. I mean, it, it's spilled out in different parts, but but like it, it's the, the knowledge or the, the, you know, the thought of like how of crafting something into a story that sort of trains you to think, okay, so what is the story of this place? And like, what is this? Mm. And why, why have I heard, you know, like hall or, you know, like, you know, like a uh, Tammany hall or why, why have I heard mm-hmm. this word before? Mm-hmm. And it, and, and I know what a hall is in my house and I wouldn't name it anything, <laughs> you know, like, you know, so, so, it, so it's just sort of like, you notice those differences and you go like, okay, so if there's a difference in incongruity or something I can't understand, well, the, then there's a story there. There's a difference between that. That Delta is what, is what the story is. And so mm-hmm. you just sort of be alert to those things and, um, and then have fun with them. And then sometimes they, they come to nothing. Like it's not all stories are great, you know, like, but, but occasionally they, they are. And, and sometimes it's just in the way that you tell them. And sometimes it's about the passion of, of telling it, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, I think that the whole story is like 
you know, like you could tell it kind of boringly, you know, but I, you know, but I turn the hall into a person, you know, like that you pour one out for, you know, like that's part of the process of it is to, is to make it interesting. But yeah, you, you definitely can just read plaques and, you know, like look down a lot, you know, like you can, you can do it. It's like, <laughs> Usually engaging with the built world usually involves some disengagement with actual humans, you know, but you can do it. (laughs) So we talked earlier about what makes a good story, but what do you think makes a great story? I think you have to have moments of delight, like really these periodic moments of delight, like even for something like an intense story that, is pretty heavy. I feel like you have to have this lightness. I don't, for some reason, Mayor of Easttown is like <laughs> popping into my head, which is really an mm. intense show. But like, if it wasn't for these moments of delight in that show, like, I don't know if I could have made it through it exactly. Like, it was really key, that balance. And so like, you know, I don't make Mayor of Easttown type shows. Like, I don't do anything like that. But I do notice it when I see it, that you look for those, it's almost like you need things that aren't the story to make a great story. Does that make sense? Like, yes. Yeah. I don't think you need necessarily good ending because a lot of our endings are kind of like, uh, could, I don't know, could be good, could be bad. You know, like, it just like up to you. You know, like, I don't think you need to require that. I just think you need like, you need enough struggle. You need good voices, good characters. You need enough things in there that are just like, you can tell they're there for the joy of being there. Mm. And, and then, um, and I think you can go pretty far on that, you know? Um, and then when it all comes together and it's like a real story, like we, we occasionally tell like something that's extremely cinematic. Um, and, and those are super satisfying and fun. And then they have to hit you in the moment, you know, like that, that they, they matter in a moment, you know, I think that's a, another key moment. So a part of it is like, you know, if it hits the audience member, you know, like that's, that's the thing. So you're always trying to be trying to serve someone, something that matters to them. But I, I think it's what makes a great story is is like is you have a good story and then you you have things in it that aren't the story in a way. Mm. <laughs> so, thank you so much for this. This was incredible. Yeah, this was a true delight. Um, I I don't know how I made this leap in my life from listening to you for so many years to getting to talk to you, but it's really special um, and. I'm I, I've already felt what you said about like looking about looking at the world around me differently from working on our podcast. And I know that your podcast has um, affected me in a similar way. But I, I feel re-energized to just go look at everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's excellent. Well, it was a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for all the insightful questions and stuff. I'm delighted that we had this chance to talk. That was so interesting when Roman was talking about establishing characters in a podcasting piece. Mm-hmm. When you're writing a script, mm-hmm. how do you build out characters? Um, gosh, what a good question. How do I build out characters? Um, I think everybody has to have a point of view. Mm-hmm. I think um, I don't I don't know if you've had this, but have you ever auditioned for something? And I don't want to talk smack about any particular projects but have you ever auditioned for something where you're just like agreeable <laughs> yes yeah it's like i was like i think everybody has an actual point of view most people even if they're saying yes they're not they are not devoid of opinions that is so you know what you know what that makes me think of 
at some point, you know, in, on Community in specific, there were so many scenes where it'd be all six of us all the time and you didn't mm-hmm. always have um, lines. And my bad acting tendency is to kind of just like check out when I'm not talking. But then I was like, <laughs> my character has an opinion about everything that's happening and being said. And I even if that is just like in my own mind, like I need to keep that internal dialogue going throughout all of the scenes. Okay, but group scenes are so hard. Like, I I was not on this show, and so I don't want to speak for the actors on this show, but sometimes I watch, like, The Office, and I'm Uh like, how did you do that? Like, how did you do that? those big, like, bullpen scenes for years where you're just, like, playing on a computer. You know, I'm like, is that computer even hooked up to the internet? Like, what were you doing that whole time? I think I read that it was, and they were doing a lot of online shopping. (laughs) (laughs) You make money, you spend money. How much money did you make today? Well, I made this much. How much money did you spend today? Well, that's another question. Yeah. (laughs) It is time to read some comments. So here's one from Twitter. And this is actually from a former guest, Dr. Clifford Johnson. He tweeted about us. Uh, He was in our episode, Mind-Bending Theories About Space-Time. Please, please, please go check it out. Dr. Johnson listened to the episode and he tweeted, Just why are there so many shows and movies on time travel everywhere you look? This might actually be one of my best interviews on these topics. And this is all due to the great host. That's us. (laughs) And Tamika, who is also a host. Yes. (laughs) She's giving me a look right now. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that conversation with Dr. Johnson. And and getting back to like, you know, we asked him, why does Hollywood go back to time travel over and over again? And it made me think also about the nature of storytelling and and what are those themes that also Mm. ties into what we were just talking about with Roman Mars about Mm -hmm. what makes compelling stories And what is that underlying urge about being able to go back in time, redo something, have a a second chance at a moment in life? I understand. I'm like, oh, it makes total sense why we keep telling these time travel stories over and over again. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Periodic Talks. And don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We might even read your comment on the show. This podcast is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. And our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. And we get research assistance from Juliana Torres. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.